Good morning, I'm Pastor Richard. I want to welcome you to our worship service here at Shiloh Reformed Church in Faith, North Carolina. We are blessed to have you worshiping with us today at home or wherever you are, and we are excited that you can be a part of this time with us. We are excited to be able to share the blessed assurance of Jesus Christ with you today, and I would like to open up with a word of prayer as we get started. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the assurance that we have in Christ, an assurance that can carry us through the most difficult of times. But Lord, as we will talk about today, we know sometimes we don't feel so assured. And Father God, we pray that your presence and your peace and your power will be evident in our lives as we seek to understand things through the lens of your word that you have given to us. We're reminded that sometimes what we think we see is not the entire picture. So Lord, as we begin this new series today, help us to begin to put together all the pieces and to see things from your perspective so that we will know we can trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I would imagine when many of us were younger, we probably sang or at least heard the song that went something like this. He's got the winds and the rains in his hands. He's got the tiny little baby in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. That's a familiar tune to most of us, but I wonder how many of us have either in the past or are currently feeling in the present as if our world is out of control to the point that we're starting to question whether or not God really does have the whole world, including our lives, in his hands. I wonder how many of us have experienced or are experiencing such intense horror, hurt, and heartache in our lives, our families, and our countries, that we are almost at the point of feeling as if we're going to give up on God. Some of you watching today may already have almost given up on the idea of God, especially the idea of God as he spelled out in the scriptures. I mean, some of us have asked, how could an all-good all-loving, all-powerful God allows such evil and suffering in the world, right? Well, I would bet that many of us have felt like the Israelites did when God pinned them against the Red Sea, or more literally in the Hebrew, the Reed Sea, with the Egyptian army breathing down their necks. Why would God, I'm sure they were thinking, free them from their Egyptian slavery only to lead them to a place of no escape from their oppressors. It didn't make any sense to them. So they cried out to Moses in Exodus 14 verse 11, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Then there was the time when the 12 disciples were struggling to keep the boat afloat in the middle of the storm on the Sea of Galilee, while Jesus, meanwhile, remained asleep in the stern. None of it made sense to them, so according to Mark 4.38, they 
quickly woke him up and cried out, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? How can you sleep at a time like this? And in each of these moments filled with fear and panic, if we had told the Israelites and disciples that God had the whole world in his hands and that he would work everything out for the good, at best they would have struggled to say, uh, uh, Amen. Or at worst, they would have had a few choice words for us. Of course, those of us familiar with these two accounts today know that within a matter of moments, God resolved all of their issues. In the case of the disciples, Jesus woke up and calmed the storm. In the case of the Israelites, he parted the sea so that they could escape and then drowned the Egyptian armies. But what about those times in our lives when our problems are not resolved in a matter of moments? What about those times when we have pleaded with God to work things out, but our struggles continue day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year? That is the question driving this sermon series that's simply called God is in control. During the next few weeks, we will wrestle with the mystery of how God governs the affairs of man in this world. And even when it is difficult for us to understand what in the world he is doing. And if you've ever asked the question, if God is so real, then why doesn't my life or this world make any more sense than it does? Then this series is for you. Now I invite you to turn to the first book in the Bible, Genesis, to chapter 37. There we're going to be introduced to a teenager named Joseph who is about to embark on a long and lengthy journey of misfortune and injustice that will last for more than a decade. But if we will stick with him throughout this series till the end of the story, we will discover that God is indeed in control, even when things seem out of control. Now, before we get to chapter 37, I need to set the stage of the background for where Joseph's family came. His father was Jacob. Jacob was the twin brother of Esau. Jacob's father, Isaac, favored his brother Esau, but his mother, Rebekah, favored him. One day, Esau came in from hunting, basically saying that he was starving to death, and Jacob just happened to be fixing some stew that smelled good to Esau, and so Jacob says, I'll tell you what, Esau said, I'd like some of that stew. What will you take for it? And Jacob says, I'll take your birthright, which meant that he would get Esau's firstborn inheritance. Well, at that point, Esau was so hungry that he unwisely traded his birthright for some bread and some stew. Later, when Isaac grew old and was no longer able to see that well, he sent Esau out to hunt and prepare some wild game for him. The point was that once Esau returned and prepared the game, then 
Isaac would give him his blessing. Now, Rebekah overheard everything that had, they had been talking about, and she got Jacob to dress and act like his brother Esau. She prepared some food that Isaac would like and dressed Jacob in uh, Esau's clothes and instructed him to act like his brother. When Esau returned, he discovered that his younger brother had beat him to the punch. Rebekah, along with Jacob, had fooled Isaac into blessing him. And when Esau discovered what had happened, the scripture says that he held a grudge against Jacob and said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Rebekah at that point warned Jacob to flee to her brother's Laban's house until Esau's anger subsided. Now Jacob arrived at his uncle's home and was welcomed. After Jacob worked for Laban for a month, Laban said, this guy's a good worker. And he says, well, how can I compensate you for what you're doing? And Jacob thought for a moment and he noticed Laban's younger daughter, Rachel, who was a lovely sight to see. And he thought to himself, I'll tell you what, I'll work for you for seven years if you will promise me Rachel. And they agreed. And after seven years of work, Laban had a big feast. And what I would, where I imagined there was some drinking going on. Because in the festivities, Laban somehow fooled Jacob into marrying, not Rachel, but his older daughter, Leah who was described as having a weak eye, making her less attractive. Now, perhaps Jacob was drunk. Perhaps he was unable to see well in the dark. Perhaps it was a little bit of both. But either way, when he woke up the next morning and looked over next to him in the bed and saw Leah, I would imagine his reaction was like, "Ah! what are you doing here? This did not go according to plan. And Jacob, the man who had conned his brother out of his birthright and blessing, suddenly found himself on the other side of the con job. He had been conned himself. Therefore, he worked another seven years for Laban before he was able to marry his true love, Rachel. Now, with this as the background, how loved do you think Leah felt? How well or how healthy was her self-esteem? How do you think she felt toward her more attractive sister? God saw that Leah was not loved so much, so he blessed her with fertility and children. She thought to herself, now that she was having children, having some sons, maybe Jacob would love her and by the fourth child Rachel had grown jealous of her sister because you see Rachel was unable to have children up to that point so she gave Jacob her servant Bilhah as his wife Bilhah bore Jacob two sons and as was the custom back then the sons were considered Rachel's not to be outdone Leah gave Jacob her servant Zilpah as his wife, who bore him two more sons. 
Then as the wifely rivalry continued, Leah went on to bear Jacob two more sons and a daughter that we know of from the scriptures. But Rachel also was able to have children after that. She eventually bore him a son named Joseph. Now, do you see all the family turmoil that was created by favoritism, dishonesty, jealousy, and rivalry over the years? Like many today, they failed to learn from their mistakes, and thus the cycle of the dysfunction continued. Now, when you hear the term dysfunctional family, what do we mean by that? Well, according to psychology.jrank.org, quote, healthcare professionals define dysfunctional family as one where the relationships among family members are not conducive to emotional and physical health. Sexual or physical abuse, alcohol and drug addictions, delinquency and behavior problems, eating disorders, and extreme aggression are some conditions commonly associated with dysfunctional family relationships. Now, I wonder how many of us listening to that description there can identify with some of those items. The truth is, all families have at least some level of dysfunction. It's no secret that many families today are broken and hurting. If you don't believe me, just ask a public school teacher. When Wendy and I, my wife, were first dating, I remember her sharing with me how one of the things that kind of overwhelmed her early on in teaching was that she discovered that she was more of a mother to many of her students than their own mothers were. Years ago, Christian psychologist, author, and founder of Focus on the Family, Dr. James Dotson, relayed the account of a sixth-grade California teacher whose students belonged to the upper-middle-class metropolitan families. One day, she gave them an assignment during which she said, I want you to write a sentence beginning with these words, I wish. Now, She expected probably like many of us that she would get things like, I want a bicycle or I want a trip to Hawaii or I want a TV or stuff like that. But 20 of her 30 students gave answers, things like this. I wish my parents wouldn't fight and I wish my father would come back. I wish my mother didn't have a boyfriend. I wish I could get straight A's so my father would love me. I wish I had one mom and one dad so the kids wouldn't make fun of me. I have three moms and three dads and they botch up my life. You know, as I was thinking about this, over the years I have talked to numerous sons and daughters of all ages, from children, middle schoolers, high schoolers, college age, grown adults who are still dealing with the heartaches and hurts caused by family dysfunction. And let me assure you, no matter the depth of the pain and problems, 
there is a God who is still in control. And he can heal you. And if you're in one of these cycles of dysfunction, he can help you break that cycle of dysfunction. I know one of my friends was one of those that broke that deep cycle. Now, I know that many of us may not be able to see that right now. But if we keep our eyes focused on Christ and allow his healing power to work in the days, months, and even years ahead, God can take the worst of things that have happened to us and help us to realize the power of his promise in Romans 8, 28, where Paul wrote, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So now with that background, we're ready to take a look at Joseph. And I go ahead and encourage you, I, I encourage you, stick with me through this whole series because you're not going to see what in the world God is up to unless you follow every step of the way. So now I invite you to turn to Genesis 37, verse 2. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, referring to Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, from his older brother's perspective, it was bad enough that Joseph was a snitch. I mean, nobody likes a tattletale, right? But Joseph was also daddy's favorite little boy. He received a richly ornamented robe unlike anything the others had ever gotten. Now, many of us know from personal experience how this whole sibling rivalry thing works, even in the most normal of circumstances, don't we? Siblings always keep a sharp eye out to make sure that their brother or sister's piece of pie is not bigger than theirs. It is not uncommon that younger siblings uh, for them to point out how unfair it is that their older siblings get to do things that they can't. And vice versa, it is not uncommon for older siblings to spot how their younger brothers or sisters are treated differently as well. I mean, how many of us have ever heard an older child complain something like this? I never got to do that at his age. Or how come I had to do this and she doesn't? I can almost hear Joseph's brothers saying amongst themselves, how come he gets a robe and we didn't? Huh? Dr. Bruce Waltke points out that the Hebrew words in verse 4 translated that Joseph's brothers could not speak a kind word to him can also mean that Joseph's brothers could not as so much as greet him. In other words, they couldn't even stand to talk to him, and they probably couldn't stand to be around him either. 
Not to mention that his brothers had probably observed over the years how Joseph's mother, Rachel, garnered more affection and attention than their own mother's. I bet that they had observed the friction even between Leah and Rachel and the others. And we all know that sons and daughters tend to stick up for their own moms. Now that Rachel had died during the birth of Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, it seems that Jacob had channeled a lot of his affection for her onto his son, Joseph, now. After all, he and Benjamin were the last connections that Jacob had with his beloved wife, whom he had lost. The tensions between the wives and the love lavished on Rachel and her son, Joseph, served as fertile ground for rivalry and resentment to grow. Again, you would think that Jacob would have learned from his troubles, from the troubles created by his own parents' favoritisms toward him and his brother. But as often is the case with dysfunctional families, he apparently failed to see the connection between the issue and the problems that it led to. And that brings us to the first point in the outline. When the heat, H-E-A-T, that's our acronym this morning, when the heat is on due to family dysfunction, we can trust that God is in control of hatred. He's in control of hatred. Did God condone Joseph's brother's sinful attitudes? Of course not. But was sinful hatred an indication that God had lost control of the situation? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, the next verses indicate that God was fully engaged and involved in their family life, in spite of the sinful damage being caused in that present time. When you look back at verse 5 in chapter 37, it says, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Now trust me when I say that it will become apparent in the weeks ahead that Joseph's dreams were from and of God. But that does not mean that God approved of Joseph's immature words dripping with conceit. These dreams swelled Joseph's head and he used them to take further digs at his brothers 
We might say that Joseph was poking the bear and Jacob was right to rebuke him for his teenage arrogance. On the other hand, though, did God approve of Jacob's brother's growing resentment and jealousy? No. But can God take all of this family's sins and cause them to work together with other things to bring about his own divine good purposes? Absolutely. Secondly, this morning when the heat is on due to family dysfunction, we can trust that God is in control of envy. Of envy. Now let me quickly point out here that even though God is always in control, there are times when things from an earthly perspective go from bad to worse, as it seems to for Joseph right here. Verse 12, now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Now, <laughs> Joseph is a known snitch. And daddy's sending him off 50 miles away from home to go check and see if his brothers are okay and everything's going well. Does that strike you as a wise decision to make? Especially since Jacob would have known about the sibling rivalry issues and the bitter jealousy and hatred they held for Joseph. Anyway, verse 14 continues. Then he sent Joseph off to the valley of Hebron, from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. Now Dothan was another 13 miles away. So now he is over 60 miles away on foot from his protective father. Then in verse 18. But they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, he plotted to kill him. They plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes out of his dreams. We'll put him in his place. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. Now, don't you know that they sadistically enjoyed ripping that robe off of him? 
because of all that that robe represented. Then in verse 24, And they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat as they sat down to eat their meal. Now I want to pause in the middle of that sentence because think about this. They had just humiliated their brother and thrown him into a deep, empty reservoir. And now they calmly have sat down to have some dinner? Do you understand just how sick that mindset has to be? Which brings us to the third point. When the heat is on due to family dysfunction, we can trust that God is in control of abuse. He's still in control of abuse. What Joseph's brothers did to him was emotionally and probably physically abusive. The whole incident would have left some serious scars in Joseph's heart that probably never went away. Now I want to pause here though for a moment. Joseph was helpless to help himself. But we have resources today. If you are a victim of sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, or neglect, first of all, let me say it's not your fault. It is not your fault. Let me also say that you are made in God's image and are therefore valued greatly by Him. You are precious and beautiful in his sight and he loves you more than you could ever imagine no matter how hard that might be to believe right now whether you are an abused spouse or child it is not God's plan that you continue to subject yourself to that kind of abuse there are local family shelters and domestic violence resources for spouses Spousal victims of abuse can also contact the National Domestic Abuse Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233 or by texting in all caps, LOVE IS, to 22522. Or you can also go online to thehotline.org. But let me caution you. Do these things from a safe place and be careful to use a phone or a computer that can't be monitored by the one abusing you. And young people, you who are abused can talk to a trusted teacher, a guidance counselor, a counselor, a doctor, a pastor, or a youth pastor. You can also contact the Child Help National Child Abuse Hotline by either calling or texting 1-800-422-4453 or by going online to childhelphotline.org. Now I also want to speak to those of us who may be wrestling with the thoughts of, am I an abuser? There are resources to help you as well. Some of you are passing on the dysfunctional cycle that was passed on to you, to your children. And if you know what kind of damage it has done to you, why in the world would you do that to someone else? If you're an abuser that needs help, 
there is Parents Anonymous that you can contact. You can Google it and find out how to get involved with that ministry. But regardless of whether you are the abuser or the abusee, change can be a scary thing. But remember, never forget, God is in control. Well, as we get back to Joseph, I'll go ahead and tell you, it probably doesn't seem that way to him right now. Verse 25, as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. Well, isn't he compassionate? Let's profit from him rather than killing him. He is our brother, our own flesh and blood, and his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't here. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in, dipped the, robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe he recognized it and said it is my son's robe some ferocious animal has devoured him joseph has surely been torn to pieces then jacob tore his clothes put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days all his sons and daughters came to comfort him but he refused to be comforted no he said In mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. Now, I know they're behind all this, but how did it make them feel? Can you imagine the twisted emotions that were inside of them when their father wouldn't even accept their own comforting? So his father wept for Joseph. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Fourth and finally this morning, when the heat is on in this, due to family dysfunction, we can trust that God is in control of treachery. His brother's betrayal of Joseph and their lies to cover it all up were despicable and malicious. But don't miss the fact that the one to whom J- uh, Joseph was sold was Potiphar, one of the officials of the Egyptian Pharaoh. And all I can say right now is that that is no coincidence. Because when we jump ahead to chapter 39 in Genesis at verse 2, we read the Lord was with Joseph. I doubt that Joseph felt like at this time that his dreams 
were going to work out. I bet it did not compute what was happening to him in the dreams that he had had. But let me tell you, when our lives seem senseless, God can make sense out of them. But he doesn't always do it just like that. We can trust that he is working everything out according to his plan, even if it is hard to understand in the present. And if you find yourself in the middle of family dysfunction and are afraid today, remember that when you are in Christ and know him as Savior and Lord, God's promise to Joshua still applies to us in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. Let us pray. Father God, for all who are listening, I pray, Lord, that they know you through your Son, Jesus Christ, and can hold on to that promise that we just read. For we know that Jesus promised that he would be with his followers. And so, Lord, if any today who are listening have not known him just yet and have not made him Savior and Lord of their lives, I pray, Lord, that they can pray with me. Father God, I recognize my sinful attitudes and sinful actions. Just because of all the junk that others have dumped on me doesn't justify me dumping on others and I ask for your forgiveness provided through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for me. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will come into my life and my heart and help me to follow him faithfully each and every day. Even when things don't make sense, even when it's hard to trust, may we be filled with the eyes of faith to see beyond our circumstances. Father God, we know we need you. We can't do it without you. So open up our hearts so that we can allow your healing balm to flow throughout the hurts that we have stored within. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.